This is Everything is Interesting, your source for exploring science right here on X-Ray FM. I'm Kira Klingenberg. And I'm Kira Lindenberg. On today's episode, we're going to explore one of the most infamously invasive organisms known to the human species, the human immunodeficiency virus, or HIV for short. And we are lucky enough today to have our good friend Jefferson Smith in the house for our conversation. Hi, Jefferson. Hello. So HIV is one of the most deadly diseases for us humans. When it infects one of us, it destroys our own body's ability to defend and heal. This year, there have been some monumental breakthroughs in the treatment of HIV, including the second case of a person who had the virus eradicated from their body. A remarkable achievement. But to fully grasp the challenge of beating HIV, you first have to understand why viruses are such formidable invaders in the first place. So we've split this episode into two parts. Today in part one, we'll give you a rundown on how a virus like HIV manages to invade a human body, take over its internal cell mechanisms, and wreak havoc. And then in part two, we'll look at the treatments that we have so far, how patient number two was effectively cured of HIV this year, and what the future might hold for creating genetically altered humans who would be immune to HIV altogether. Ooh. Section 1. What makes a virus such a good invader? So let's get started by taking a look at what makes a virus such a keen invader of the human body in the first place. And I want to be clear, because you've taught me this in the past, that a virus is not the same as bacteria. Yeah, that's exactly right. They are not bacteria. Oh, how many times those two get mixed up? It does my head in. Yes, they're both microscopic, and yes, they can both make you sick, but that's about where the similarities end. Right. A bacteria, it's a single-celled but fully functional little critter. On the most basic level, it's just like one of the many cells that makes up our own bodies, just one that manages to get through life all on its own. Bacteria have DNA and organelles and complex cell walls and often even little appendages that could pass for tiny arms and legs. A virus is quite literally a very short strand of DNA, and a protein shield that's kind of like armor. Like, that's it. A virus is just a long chain of molecules. So, bacteria. That has features that make it seem alive. It is alive. It's alive. Right, but the features... It might might even have arms. Yeah. But a virus just looks more like Mr. DNA from Jurassic Park, but without maybe the googly eyes and cartoon hands. Boring and maybe not even very alive looking. You know what? It doesn't have hands and it doesn't have googly eyes, but it's actually not a bad uh, comparison because it does. It has like a couple of features. It usually has like a protective shell and then it might have like a membrane around that. But it's, it's really it's just like it's so simple. It is. Li- but yeah, you're exactly right. It's a strand of DNA. I, I'm not I don't think it's a double helix, but it, it is something like Mr. DNA from, is that his name, Mr. DNA? I think so. Yeah. Ah, Mr. DNA. Yep. <laughs> and, and it's true that be Dr. DNA. If, you, if you looked at a virus, it, it wouldn't intuitively look alive to you. It just look like this bunch of molecules. And some of the world's most prominent virologists are actually still debating whether a virus is truly alive or not. You just wouldn't think it, a simple tiny strand of DNA is having any wants or feelings or any of the qualities that we like to define life with because, well, it's just molecules. Yeah, it's going to be very confusing to look at a short strand of DNA and think that it has like, you know, it like wants to get up and dance or whatever. But I I mean, we can get into this a different time, but I actually do believe that viruses are alive because they behave like they're alive. Right. Well, case in point, viruses exhibit one of the most defining characteristics of all life forms, 
they all really, really, really want to reproduce. Like they really, really want to make more of themselves. In fact, you might even say that this is a virus's sole purpose in its quote-unquote life. But on its own, a virus has no way to replicate itself because, again, remember, it is a short strand of molecules with some protein armor. It lacks all the complex building machinery, the quality control agents, the DNA doctors, the guards, the worker molecules to carry the building blocks and the important messages and the whatever. Like all the things that cells have and cell-based life forms have at their disposal, virus is none of that. So in order for a virus to replicate, it has to utilize the tricks and trade of... I don't know, like a jealous criminal mastermind from a movie to get the job done. In order to make copies of itself, it has to sneak into a living cell where self-replication, specifically of the DNA kind, is happening all day every day. And then it has to hijack that machinery. And it's actually the simplicity of the virus, of its form, that allows it to get in and do this and to hide so well within the cells of our own bodies. Because we're like Mr. DNA with the eyes and the arms and the you know the googly eyes and the arms and the hands, then it couldn't really go in and disguise itself. It couldn't go fit in. It's very simplicity. It what makes it possible and necessary for it to sneak into a living cell and hijack it. This is what I believe you're telling me. Right, because if it went in and was like, ah, Mr. DNA, they would all know <laughs> that actually he was a cartoon character. Never announce yourself, Park. especially if you have an accent. It's a dead giveaway. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a good example of making the best of your limitations. Once we humans get infected by a virus, that virus is on a mission to invade as many of the cells in our body as it can and to break into the DNA synthesizing factory housed within each of them. This takes some work on the part of the virus, work that's pretty ingenious and weird, super weird. So try imagining the DNA factory within your cell like a high-security government building, okay? It's a maze of complex hallways and levels, you know, well-guarded and reinforced with walls and all kinds of sophisticated defenses. Now, imagine the virus like a top-notch spy trying to get in unnoticed. The virus first has to case the perimeter, right, looking for weaknesses in the building structure. And as luck would have it for the virus, the outer wall of most cells contain these little windows where... Typically, like, hormonal messages get passed from one cell to the next. These little windows are called receptor proteins. They're essentially like the mail slots on the otherwise impenetrable doors of this hypothetical DNA factory. The holes are tiny, and they're weirdly shaped. But if you can figure out how to get through them, you're in. And a virus can change its shape. So when a virus is in travel mode, it's like, you know, poised to invade a cell, it can sneakily rearrange its shape to resemble those hormone messages that are, you know, normally allowed into the cell. And this allows them to hijack those receptor proteins we were just talking about. So a spot in the cell wall opens up that's just big enough for the virus to slip inside. And as it sneaks in through the cell wall, the virus creates a bubble around itself using the cell's own cell wall or plasma membrane. And by enclosing itself in this bubble, the virus is ingeniously protecting itself from the antibodies that the cell would usually use to identify and eradicate an intruder. So it's a little bit like when the spy knocks out one of the guards, or you might even think like Luke Skywalker takes the stormtrooper costume and puts on those clothes to get around the building undetected. Yeah, it's exactly like that. Because, yeah, it's, it's just like encasing itself in a little bubble of cell. So the cell goes, oh, that's just part of me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And then once inside, the whole, you know, just act natural and pretend you're part of the host cell act, like really pays off for the virus. It goes straight for the nucleus because 
That's, of course, where all the DNA copying happens. And that's where the virus wants to hijack. So the nucleus is also where a bunch of other DNA that belongs to the cell is hanging out. So it's a perfect place for the virus to blend in. Because it's like a DNA strand without it is googly a DNA eyes strand. and hands. Yeah, yeah okay. without, without, the, without the hands. That we know of. That we know of. And once inside, the virus doesn't loudly announce itself to, like, hey, I'm in the nucleus. It just sort of stays quiet and pretends to be part of the cell's own DNA. And this works really well. The worker molecules inside the nucleus that are doing all of the DNA replication work, they don't know that the virus is any different from just another boring old strand of cellular DNA. So what do they do? They grab it up and they copy it all the same. The virus now has what it wants, which is access to the DNA replication facility deep inside the guarded cell and to the worker molecules that will unknowingly copy it over and over again. In this way, a single viral strand can very quickly become many, many, many viral strands. And when a virus infects and invades your body, it's usually not just one, but many viral strands that circulate and hijack many of your individual cells. So if each of those strands begins to use your own cells to replicate... Then the entire viral infection would multiply exponentially and spread super fast. Yeah, that's exactly what the virus wants. I think I get this. So a virus isn't like bacteria because bacteria can do stuff, including reproduce. Mm -hmm. A virus can't reproduce. Mm -mm. The only way it can do it is find something else that can reproduce. So it goes in the middle of the cell where all the reproducing is happening, and it says, I'm like you, and it makes a bunch of them. Yeah. You know what? It it tricks the cell. It's kind of like, what's that episode of Star Trek where Deanna Troy gets pregnant with the star child? Wouldn't it just be called Star Child? Yeah, I think it might be. It's kind of like that. Like the Star Child has no way to reproduce on its own, so it has to... Hijack something that can do it for them. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Creepy, but effective. So is this the same way that they spread? How do they get out of the nucleus of the cell where they're being reproduced? Is it just because they get in the regular channel or do they have some mechanism? Do they just slip out of those same male slots in the cell wall and march on down to the next cell in line? No, no. It's actually, so it's worse than that. If they were just going to leave through the same male slots they came in, it would actually take a lot of time and effort for the virus. So instead... Once the virus has tricked the cell into making a bunch of copies of itself, it just blows up the whole building. Like Luke Skywalker and the Death Star. That's actually totally right. Man, I wish I had thought of a Star Wars analogy instead of a Star Trek analogy. But, you know, it's cool. We, we can mix mediums here. They're both awesome. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, the point is viruses do not play nice. When they are done replicating and they're ready to, like, move on and move out, they basically just cut the cell's outer wall into pieces they're like, I'm free and you're dead. Bye. You got to hand it to them, though. This is a pretty ingenious strategy. I mean, I guess you'd have to have a pretty good strategy to have no way to self-replicate yourself and yet to have survived for almost 3.4 billion years on this planet. Bonkers. Right. And the survival technique that we've described is how all viruses manage to keep their kind going. Viruses can pretty much invade any kind of cell. They can even invade a single cell bacteria and do that to them. But while all viruses are cunning cell infiltrators, they're not all made the same. Some are worse than others. Which brings us to the subject of today's episode, the human immunodeficiency virus, commonly known as HIV. Let me put it this way. If your average virus is like the first little mushroom bad guy you have to squish in Super Mario World, well, then the HIV virus is like the big daddy final level mega boss, you know, the Bowser in the final castle level. It's a virus you don't want to mess around with. And here's why. Section two, 
Why is HIV the worst virus of all? The first thing that makes HIV such a rough viral invader for our bodies has to do with the types of cells that it hijacks and destroys. Since a lot of viruses end up killing their host cells, letting any pathogenic virus run free in the human body is inadvisable at best. Luckily, we have antiviral drugs that can help kill off some viral strains like, you know, hepatitis B and vaccines, vaccines for others like the measles. But even so, the best defense we have is still, da-da-da-da, our own immune systems. Seriously. I appreciate my immune system. Sometimes I say thank you to my immune system. I sometimes wonder if I should say thank you to my immune system regularly. Yeah, you should thank your immune system regularly. Like, first of all, because you wouldn't be alive without it. And second of all, because it's kicking major butt against all kinds of ailments all day, every day. Viruses, bacteria, cancerous cells, cuts, bruises. The list goes on, like, indefinitely. There is no single day of your life when your white blood cells, the champions of your immune system, aren't going into battle to help keep you healthy. But when the HIV virus enters your body, rather than just infiltrate a random cell and hope the immune system doesn't find out, it actually goes straight for the white blood cells themselves. HIV is shaped specifically to infiltrate CD4 T cells, also more commonly known as helper T cells, by attaching to a protein on the surface of the cell called CCR5. And these CD4 T cells are like your elite national guard. So when HIV infects you, it's not just hijacking and killing any old cell. It's destroying the very cells that your body would normally use to eradicate the virus in the first place. Essentially, HIV completely knocks out the most crucial defense we have against them and all other pathogens, leaving us very exposed and very much in danger. But that's not all. The mega boss of all viruses doesn't become the mega boss of all viruses because it only has one trick up its sleeve. Once it infects you, HIV is also really hard to get rid of. This is because HIV mutates way faster than regular viruses. And almost every time a copy of the virus is made, these slight variations in its sequence occur. Those are the mutations. And, and those mutations make it really difficult for us to make antiviral drugs that can keep up with it. Wait a sec. But the HIV virus is being copied by the worker molecules inside your own cells. You're telling me they don't have a way to recognize the HIV virus even as they copy it? Don't they have some quality control to make sure that one blood cell looks pretty much the same as another blood cell? Yeah. No. Okay. Your cell has quality control. And, and in fact, quality control is so... So as it's copying DNA, it, it actually is doing quality control. It's such a predictable rate that we can tell you how quickly DNA mutates, right? Like, that's how we know how fast evolution happens is because, you know, in, in copying, I mean, DNA is like gazillions of, of nucleotide pairs. You're going to have some mess-ups in there, but those happen so infrequently and at such a predictable rate that we can say, okay, from, from one blood cell making a copy to the next blood cell, there's probably going to be, I don't know, three mess ups or whatever. So that's how DNA works. And, and therefore, you can't really say, like, there's no such thing as, like, evolving faster. Like, nothing evolves faster than anything else. It just gets, like, replicated at a more frequent rate. So you're right. HIV isn't going to mutate any faster because the cell does have these quality control mechanisms in place. The problem is that we've been lying to you, and HIV is not DNA. It is actually RNA. Ribonucleic acid. Let's yes. pretend I know what that means. Yes. <laughs> yes, it's, it's 
ribonucleic acid. And that means that HIV is actually what's called a retrovirus. Okay, let's take a moment to look at the difference between DNA and RNA. Okay. The little worker molecules in the nucleus of the cell have two different jobs. One is to copy DNA directly into other strands of DNA, right? So that's so like one cell can essentially give birth to another almost identical except for like, you know, the couple of mess ups in the DNA strand. It's, it's daughter cells giving birth to a daughter cell. The other job is to read that DNA like a blueprint in order to build all the components of the cell around it. You know, the proteins, the cell wall, the worker molecules themselves. But proteins can't be built inside the nucleus. And this is important because the nucleus is basically like a holy temple. It's reserved only for housing and reading the DNA. That's it. That's all, that's all that goes on there. So a little worker called RNA polymerase chugs along the cell strand of DNA, copying the instructions for how to build a protein, because that's, all those instructions are also part of the DNA. Let's say it's, uh, it wants to build a hemoglobin. So these instructions will then be sent outside of the nucleus, where the hemoglobin can be built by the cellular organs called ribosomes. But there's a hitch in this. The ribosomes, they can't actually read DNA. They read a similar-looking molecule known as RNA. So before the ribosomes can do their work, the instructions have to first be transcribed from DNA into RNA. That also helps the cell stay intact because you'd never want to take the DNA out of the nucleus, right? It's got to stay there for protection. So, so this RNA can then be carried out of the nucleus and delivered to the ribosome. The ribosome uses the RNA like an IKEA instruction booklet or, or one of those instruction booklets that comes with like a Lego kit. And it tells you like exactly where to put every single Lego in order to create a Lego hemoglobin protein. So the DNA gets copied inside the nucleus transcribes it into a different language, so to speak, RNA, and this gets sent out outside the nucleus because this is where the molecules we want can actually be built and read by some molecules that use the RNA IKEA instructions to build the Lego set in the Millennium Falcon or the IKEA bed. Or whatever. Yeah, yeah, sort of. I mean, I wish I had tiny Lego Millennium Falcon proteins floating around inside my body, but... No, you don't. They would hurt so bad. You're right. They would be lasers and stuff, but I digress. Understanding how RNA within a cell is important to understanding why HIV being made of RNA makes it so hard to deal with. HIV is called a retrovirus because it takes all these steps that we just described, you know, copy DNA, translate it, make RNA, make Millennium Falcon or whatever. It makes it takes all those steps in backwards order. The HIV virus enters the cell with its own protein helper called reverse transcriptase. And its job is exactly what it sounds like. It reverse transcribes the genetic material of HIV, which, remember, is RNA, into a piece of DNA. So now when it's in its DNA form, HIV is allowed to enter the nucleus and get copied a bunch of times the same way all other viruses do. Regular viruses are copied by very thorough and precise cellular machinery, meaning, you know, we're the ones that we were talking about that do quality control as they go. So that means that regular viruses get checked for accuracy as they're being made. But HIV is first copied by its own reverse transcriptase enzyme, and reverse transcriptase makes a lot of mistakes. And in the world of cellular biology, mistakes in DNA are also known as mutations, which when it comes down to it is the crux of one of the most powerful processes in the universe, evolution. So in a way, HIV is constantly evolving. Do you know how insanely powerful that makes it? 
An invader that constantly evolves and adapts means that the defenses you throw at it also have to be constantly adapting as well, which is an insane thing to try to keep up with. It's like the Borg from Star Trek. Another Star Trek reference, you know, like you fire the phaser at the Borg, works a couple of times, and then the Borg adapts, and then, oh no, new phaser frequency. Oh, the Borg adapts. Oh no, new, you know. Why is the Borg so smart? Yeah, it's, it's like that. Since HIV adapts and evolves every time it's replicated inside the body, which is a lot, our body's defenses, they just can't keep up. And the medicines we create to help battle it also tend to become ineffective at an alarmingly fast pace. Is there no antiviral software? Is there no McAfee, no Norton, no tool that we can use to beat back this monster of a virus? It makes it very difficult because we can't attack HIV at the DNA or I guess the RNA level um, because it's constantly mutating. But remember, I did we did talk about how a lot of viruses have those protein coatings and it's got a couple other non-RNA parts as well. And so we actually do have medicines that can attack those parts of the virus. Um, but we'll get into that in the next episode. And guess what, guys? It, HIV, it's this isn't the last this isn't. All of it. it. It actually gets worse. Worse? Worse. Yeah. Consider you have like a huge number of white blood cells in your body. I was trying to think of how many, but I don't know, a, a gazillion. That's 17. my number. You have, nope, more than, I can categorically say you have, if you have 17 white blood cells, then you are probably dead. A single drop of blood from a healthy person, I happen to know, can contain between 7,000 and 25,000 of these little disease fighters. So I don't know how many drops of blood do you have. That's how many white blood cells you have. And given that, an interesting thing is that the white blood count of a person infected with HIV is way, way, way low. And in fact, it's lower than we would expect from just the cell deaths that occur when the virus cuts its way to freedom, you know, after it gets into the nucleus and, and replicates itself. So what gives? What's destroying all those extra white blood cells? Well, after decades of searching, researchers finally discovered the answer. It turns out that between 90 and 95 percent of these helper T cells that die when a person has HIV are not even infected with the virus. So they're just like innocent bystanders? Yeah, 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 kind of. Actually. So when the cell becomes infected or when a cell becomes infected with HIV, there's a point where it gets noticed by the body, right? A special protein called IFI-16 is responsible for recognizing all that foreign viral DNA hanging around. So to answer your question, yes, the cell does eventually notice, like, uh, this is not my DNA. What's happening here? And so while it may not be able to pinpoint it as HIV, it certainly knows, like, uh, that shouldn't be here. So it sets off a sort of alarm by causing the synthesis of a bunch of molecules called interleukin-1-beta. Great names, isn't it? Invigorating names. <laughs> but these, these, in turn, these in turn trigger a lot of inflammation within the cell. And usually inflammation is used to fight off pathogenic viruses or bacteria to like drive it out of the cell or kill it or you know, whatever. But this is not the usual case. The inflammatory response triggered by interleukin-1-beta is so intense that it causes the entire cell itself, the entire helper T-cell, to explode in a form of cellular suicide called pyroptosis. Call it what you will, but this cellular kamikaze move is for the greater good. It takes the HIV virus that's infected it right along with it and ensures that the infected cell can't make more copies of the HIV virus. In essence, this move saves the lives of neighboring white blood cells that have yet to become infected. So altruistic. 
this reaction creates big problems when it comes to HIV. So when the body is fighting a villain as serious as HIV, all the white blood cells get sent to your lymph nodes, which is like the gathering place within your circulatory system. And they basically serve as like training camps for your immune cells. A copy of the virus is transported to the lymph node, and then the white blood cells like good little soldiers, they like gather together to learn how to fight this particular foe. This is all well and good until, of course, the cell starts to go through pyroptopsis. Of course. Now the close proximity of all the white blood cells becomes very problematic. When the infected cells explode, the inflammation-causing interleukin-1 beta that had built up inside that cell is suddenly released into the surrounding area, and it ends up attaching to the surface of the many closely packed immune cells. The presence of interleukin-1-beta causes these otherwise healthy and uninfected cells to go through their own extreme inflammation, which accumulates an apoptosis cycle. And the chain reaction causes a massive die-off of way more of these extremely important disease fighters that keep us alive than is good for us. In this way, HIV inadvertently causes our own immune system to hijack itself. It turns... it all of our immune cells against each other, sort of unwillingly, in the chaos of their attempt at at destroying the virus. So HIV, in so many ways, really does just destroy our body's ability to defend itself and to heal. I will say that one of the things I appreciate so much about the show that y'all do is taking science and having it instructive and lighthearted. And it is harder for me to be lighthearted around HIV. Understandably. It is nonetheless, or at least simultaneously, Really interesting. And once again, you've proven that everything is interesting, including wrenching tragedy. Thank you, I think. It's true. You can take anything and you can go down to the level of what's happening. And if you can remove sort of like the consequence of the human factor and and the emotional factor, you can say, hey, the process, that's pretty fascinating. But the outcome really sucks. Right. And I never want anyone to think that we're making this into a lighthearted like HIV is just fun and we should study it. But the fact is, number one, if you understand it, then maybe you take away the stigma of, uh, you know, because there definitely is a, a stigma still in 2019 of people who are in with the virus. Um, and, you know, once you understand it's just science and it really has nothing to do with that, maybe that, that takes away that stigma. And also, you know, maybe when if somebody listens to this and they're so fascinated by the science behind it, maybe they're the ones that go and get a degree and find a cure. Right. And, and it's also good to understand the power of this virus and why it has been so hard to find good treatments and cures for it. Yeah, you know? exactly. So you're not just like, why haven't they figured this out already? Well, because it's tough. Right. And when they're standing up there getting like the Nobel Prize in biochemistry or whatever, they'll be like, well, it all harkens back to this episode of Everything is Interesting <laughs> I Heard Once. Always. <laughs> oh, Lordy. Anyway. So if you leave here with anything today, it should be the knowledge that HIV is one tough cookie to beat. It directly attacks the body's own ability to defend itself against the infection. It mutates at an alarming rate, and it turns our own bodies against us. It's no wonder we've had a heck of a time trying to develop treatments for it. On the next episode of Everything is Interesting, we'll get into how treatments have developed so far, how the first case of a complete cure actually might have another deadly disease to thank for it, and what the future might hold for making humans immune to HIV once and for all. Jefferson, it has been so good to have been back in the studio with you. Thank you for being here with us. It is a highlight. It is an honor for me to participate. That sounds like it's a highlight for you. Uh, (laughs) Well, it is. You are honored by my presence. (laughs) You're welcome. What I have to say is you're welcome. 
I can't imagine this episode ending in any other way. (laughs) Even when dealing with the greatest viral tragedy of the age, you have once again proven that everything is interesting. Thank you so much for letting me be a part of it. And to all you listening out there, you are the best. Without our listeners, we'd just be two nerds in Jefferson with no outlet for all this science that we got to talk about. Hey, 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 Jefferson's a nerd, too. Oh, you're right. We'd be three (laughs) nerds. So really, this show exists because of you guys. Thanks. Well, and of course, also thanks to our wonderful production and editing team, Amalia Boyles and Jenny Alpa. Yes. Man, you guys are amazing. You can find this and every episode of Everything is Interesting at our website, everythingisinteresting.org, or at the new X-Ray Podcast Network site, xraypod.com. We're also available on iTunes, Google Play, you know, all the places where podcasts live. And you can subscribe to Everything is Interesting. And hey, if you enjoyed it, feel free to share it with your friends. For now, I'm Kira Klingenberg. And I'm Kira Lindenberg. And we'll see you next time on Everything is Interesting, right here on X-Ray FM, where radio and science is yours. Thank you.